Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts when it comes to drug addiction if we know that the vast majority of users of any drug do not meet criteria for addiction, then it tells us we have to look beyond the drug in order to try and understand what's going on with addiction. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today, we welcome Carl Hart to the show. Carl is the Ziff Professor of Psychology in the Department of Psychology and also a professor of psychiatry at Columbia University. He is known for his research on neuropsychopharmacology and his advocacy for the decriminalization of recreational drugs. He's the author of High Price and has co-authored the introductory textbook Drugs, Society, and Human Behavior with Charles Kutzer. His most recent book is called Drug Use for Grown-Ups, and that's the focus of my conversation today with Carl. I really like Carl. I really have a great respect for him as a scientist, as well as a really just a cool dude. I loved nerding out with him about the latest data and facts surrounding the responsible use of drugs and how people, especially adults, can have more responsible use of drugs, but also ways in which society, uh, policies, and the police have created a lot of racist narratives that are not grounded in the actual facts of drug use. So what I really like about this episode is being able to really dive into the realities of the matter and a lot of things blew my mind you know a lot of things might surprise you too a lot of things you took for granted that you thought you knew about drug use and just how many people actually get addicted to drugs by itself is very very few in number compared to the narratives we learn and uh, instead we talk about the actual predictive factors that are most likely to make people 
addicted to drugs. And uh, also, very importantly, we discuss very concrete changes we can make in our society to lessen deaths and lessen the discrimination and stigmatization we have surrounding drug use among adults. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And without further ado, I bring you Carl Hart. Carl Hart, so great to have you on the Psychology Podcast. I'm happy to be here, man. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're. I've been following your career, and it's been, it's been incredible. And I, I love your the spirit you bring to the field, and you're so evidence based, data based. I want to kind of trace a little bit of the development of this thinking. What was your PhD topic? Maybe we'll start there. I'm trying to think. Where do we start? When you're ten? Or no? Let's start with your PhD topic. <laughs> what was your PhD? Sir, what was the what was the title of your PhD? Uh, the title of my PhD was something like nicotine effects on L channel, calcium L type channels, and it has something related to dopamine. It was a long title. You you know how we do, uh, do. those those long complicated titles that explains everything. But the bottom line is that I was looking at the effects of nicotine on behaviors of rat and the effect um, in the nucleus accumbens on on dopamine cells. So why do you get interested in that topic in particular? I was interested in, in, in drugs, so-called drugs of abuse, and I wanted to know something about the neurobiology. And so uh, one of the things that hadn't been done, a lot of things have been done, but one of the things that hadn't been done that was related to the lab, which I was in, this guy, Charlie Kassir, he was doing work with nicotine, but he hadn't really delved into the neurobiology as well. He certainly hadn't focused on L-type uh, calcium channels, and he and he hadn't focused on nucleus accumbens, uh, dopamine, and, and so uh, it was an area that that I can make a contribution that he hadn't uh, fully uh, investigated. So it was it was a good place for me to start to learn some things. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And what was the predominant narrative at that time that you've since challenged? Because I, I saw a quote, so you said something, I was ignorant, I was believing anecdote. You said that in one of your talks, and I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, you know, there was a lot that I believed. Um, there was a lot that even my uh, PhD advisor, Charlie Kassir, believed. Uh, but, mm. you know, I would be remiss if I didn't say that, you know, he's the guy who really got me to start thinking about mm. challenging things that were taken uh, uh, as fact when we had limited data. Uh, he, he's the guy who really started me on this path. There's just so much. I mean, this whole notion, for example, I said that I had started out studying so-called drugs of abuse. I mean, just that term, the field still uses that term. It's a biased term, um, you know, as the only thing that these drugs do are be abused. And then you say, well, what, even what is that? Rather than just thinking about them as any other psychoactive compounds, um, you can say psychoactive compounds that humans take or what, whatever, but drugs of abuse, that's just one of the sort of notions. Another notion was that most of the people who use any of these drugs, cocaine, nicotine, alcohol, um, heroin, whatever the drug, most of the people who use these drugs do not become uh, addicted. Uh, that is, they do not meet criteria for uh, substance use disorder. The vast majority use these drugs without a problem. But yet, when we talk about these drugs, we talk about them as if everybody who uses these drugs uh, will meet criteria for substance use disorder. 
Yeah, wow. Well, those are some some dynamite findings. I still see in the research literature, I see things like drug addiction is a brain disease. I Even recently, you know, I, I came across that kind of term. That must make your skin crawl, like when you see that in the abstract. Yeah, you, you know, it's a um, drug addiction is a brain disease has become more of a political issue than a science issue. Now, if we can go back to 1984, when I believe it was 1984, when the National Institute on Drug Abuse became subsumed under the National Institutes of Health, the National Institutes of Health, they their mission is to uh, bring to bear the science uh, to help solve health-related problems in the country. And, and we can see the value in that when we think about uh, the Institute on Heart and Blood and Lung. You know, you want them working on heart disease and those sort of issues. Uh, the uh, Cancer Institute, you want cancer, uh, that institute working on cancer because those are really serious health problems. Now you take the, the you bring the National Institute of Drug Abuse within the National Institute of Health. The mission for the National Institute of Drug Abuse becomes to focus on pathology, drug addiction, and so forth. Most of the people who use these drugs that you want to learn information about do not meet criteria for pathology. And so you're starting out with like this biased mission, and that would be okay as long as you inform people that your focus is exclusively on pathology and not these other things. But what has Mm -hmm. happened is that the National Institute on Drug Abuse acts as if everything that they publish, and mind you, they fund like 80% of the world's research in this area with this biased focus, but they act as if it's the only sort of outcome related to these drugs. And that's Mm -hmm. just, uh, that's not true. Now, when we think about the brain disease model of of drug addiction, that whole sort of uh, promulgation of that notion was done in order to get more money from Congress. Because if you have this biological concern you have something that you can put your finger on is not a moral failing. And we're not saying it is a moral failing or it's not some nebulous sort of thing. It's a real biological thing. Now, Congress is more likely to say, oh, this is a serious problem. We have to fund this. We have to put more money into this. And so it becomes this political issue. Um, And the problem is, is that Many of the scientists even who study this don't realize it's a political issue and they don't realize that the data does not support that position. And so in in 2012, I published a paper in neuropsychopharmacology where I did a review of the neuroimaging studies that looked at methamphetamine users. Now, if you're going to see some neuro, if you're going to see some neurotoxicity, you would see it in the amphetamines because the amphetamines are perhaps the best of these drugs in terms of causing neurotoxicity at large doses, doses far larger than what humans take. So if you're going to see some neurotoxicity, you would see it first with the amphetamine. And so I I, I did a literature review uh, assessing the literature, looking for some kind of neuropathology after people have been taking methamphetamine for some extended period of time to see if I could find evidence of this brain disease. And I didn't find any evidence of this. And and so, and I I published that and said this, you know, so it's maddening when I hear people continue to say this. I mean, 
I'm not saying that we will never find any evidence of it, but at this present time in our history, we don't have any evidence of it in humans at least. Yeah, that, that was one of my favorite papers uh, that you've written. It's called "Is Cognitive Functioning Impaired in Metamphetamine?" I can't say that word. Metamphetamine users. Metamphetamine. Yes. Metamphetamine users. A critical review. Yeah, and you controlled for age and education. I noticed in that paper, and you still found they score within the normal range of functioning um, using PET imaging. Uh, this idea of cognitive functioning is very interesting and near and dear to my own heart because I'm an intelligence researcher. And, uh, you know, we measure all sorts of battery of tests and things to measure cognitive functioning. When we use the phrase cognitive functioning, does that include things like working memory? Does that include things like uh, vocabulary, uh, sort of a short-term memory recall, your ability to, like, repeat back something backwards and forwards? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it includes all of that. It includes uh, something as simple as reaction time. And things more complex like cognitive flexibility, can people shift sets? I mean, it includes all of those sorts of things. Wow. Wow. Because that's not the, what I was told. When I was a kid, I was told, say no to drugs and say no to sex. Well, first of all, you shouldn't really be talking about drugs with kids. I mean, you know, mm. this is another one of these um, stupid things that we do in society. I mean, you think about sex education, at what age is appropriate for sex education? I think about my own kids. I have kids and uh, we dealt with these issues as they came up. And, and so uh, they weren't some special issue that we set aside. But let's just take high school, for example. Um, if you're going to talk about drugs in high school and say, OK, that might be appropriate. The three drugs that you're going to talk about are alcohol, tobacco and cannabis. Those are the drugs that people in high school predominantly use. When you think about something like mm. cocaine, opioids, it's less than 1% of the high school students who are going to be using those drugs. And so given that knowledge that we've had for 50 years or so, you want to just make sure that people be able to identify uh, the signs when people are having trouble or problems. You think about something like alcohol po poisoning. If someone is starting to exhibit the signs of alcohol poisoning, you want to make sure that people are able to clear the airway if they passed out, because if they start to vomit, you don't want them to choke on their vomit, those kind of things. If, then you think about something like tobacco in New York City, and uh, with my kids, it seems like damn near everyone has asthma. And so you want to make sure that people have their inhaler. You want to make sure that they are able to recognize the signs of asthma if they are smoking, whether it's tobacco or cannabis or any of those things. Another thing related to cannabis is like uh, novice, inexperienced users, oftentimes uh, they overdo it and then they get uh, suspicious, anxious, paranoid, uh, you want to make sure that people who are around them stay calm. Um, um, the drug will float away from the receptor and they will return back to normal. Um, so you want to just want to you just want to make sure that your children know how to recognize these signs in order to be able to help their friends or God forbid, even if they get in trouble, they don't panic. That's the major problem that people panic. And that's it. That's what drug edu ed education at that level should consist of. Beyond that, you don't want anybody really talking to your kids about drugs. Yeah, there's a reason why the title of your book is Drug Use for Grownups. Do you see? You see? Do you see on my? Thank you, bro. Uh, that's right. Thank I'm you. a fan. I'm a fan. <laughs> but drug use for grownups is about the responsible use of drugs. If you're going to be an adult about it and you're going to be responsible and you're going to and you're going to use it, 
what are the things that you should be doing to really minimize harm to yourself and others, right? You know, I just want to say something about drug addiction just for a second. Although in the book, I make it clear that this isn't a book about drug addiction because there's this disproportionate focus on addiction. And I didn't want to contribute to that. When it comes to uh, drug addiction, if we know that the vast majority of users of any drug do not meet criteria for addiction, then it tells us we have to look beyond the drug in order to try and understand what's going on with addiction. And those things are we've known in psychology forever. They are psychosocial predominantly, you know, um, whether or not the person is being subjected to chronic, unrealistic expectations. Uh, they recently lost jo- a job. They're no longer um, um, they no longer have good standing in their community, a wide range of these factors, including co-occurring psychiatric illnesses. Now, uh, once you uh, have taken care of those sort of things and you don't meet criteria or you're not uh, at risk for those kind of things, when I think about drug use for grownups, I think about how people use alcohol in our society, the majority of people. You use alcohol in your moments of relaxation, in your moments of, in your myopic moments, and this is your time. The same is true with any of these other drugs. Um, the problem with these other drugs is that you don't, you're not as sure about the quality control issue. So you got, if you, you're not sure what dose you have, whether or not you actually have what the person told you that you have. So you have to make sure those things are taken care of too. If you got all of those things satisfied, you take the appropriate doses in the appropriate setting, uh, set aside the time to do these things, just like you set aside time to watch, say, some sporting event, the Super Bowl, a March Madness Championship, whatever it is you set aside the time to do. The same is true with drug use. And if you do all of those kind of things, um, you are uh, more likely to have a more positive experience. As I try to describe in the book, in the book, I try to show people uh, what it's like to um, uh, be able to take drugs and enjoy the experience and do it in a responsible way, just like we do most things in our life. I mean, right. sometimes sometimes we are less responsible than others, but most of the time we do, we handle these things responsibly. Like if we look on our, how, on our highways, driving an automobile can really be a dangerous activity, but most of us do that in a responsible way. Yeah. And we don't ban automobiles just exactly. because there's a lot of deaths. I mean, pe- people eat food re- irresponsibly Absolutely, and get all sorts of diseases from it and we don't ban food. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You're, yeah. Great point. Great point. Yeah. Th- thank you. Thank you, Carl Hart. But it's very clear to me that you're not advocating for drugs. It's not like you're, you know, uh, do people misinterpret your work in that way? Do you have people oh, yeah. who are like petitioning? <laughs> They're like, Carl Hart is, a, is not good for society because he's advocating drugs. But it's clear to me you're not doing that. But do you have people who misinterpret? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. That's been one of the more painful things uh, with the release of this book. I mean, this book has sold really well, and so I'm happy about that. But you know how it is. Um, you know, you focus on sometimes on the criticism, even if the criticism is, uh, is is relatively small. But that's been one of the criticisms that you just point out um, that I'm somehow promoting drug use, and and you know the book is really trying to promote love and treating people's humanity in the same way you treat your own. That's mm-hmm. the, that's the major message, and and it's been disheartening. 
when people, some people, almost seems like intentionally uh, distort the message to say, oh, you're promoting drugs and somehow trying to destroy society. When in fact, I'm saying that we want everyone to enjoy themselves while they're here. And we want to make sure we respect everyone's humanity and autonomy. Um, and I try to like use the Declaration of Independence, the, at least the birthrights and the Declaration of Independence to help people see that we are all guaranteed these birthrights. It's self-evident that I have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are my birthrights. And so I was trying to trying to ask people to extend that to everyone in our society, so long as they are not preventing other folks from uh, enjoying their birthrights. And and so when I when people distort the message, it breaks my heart. Um, and, and, and that certainly has happened um, at, at some point. Well, we just the best we can do is just keep reiterating it, re re and reiterating it. And hopefully, this podcast will help. Uh, clear that up as well. It's very clear to me you're trying to help people pursue happiness in their own way. I think that me and you are aligned in terms of uh, appreciating self-actualization, the self, the unique self-actualization journey of an individual. That was what my latest book was about. We're connected in that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I found this other paper you wrote really, really relevant in us understanding what's going on here. It's called Alternative Reinforcers Differentially Modify Cocaine Self-Administration by Humans. And uh, not as pithy as, as drug use for grownups, <laughs> but academic papers don't tend to be as pithy. <laughs> but what I really like about this paper um, is it shows that, well, if, if you want people to, to change their behaviors, in a lot of ways, you have to give them a better, more, give them a better alternative. And we have a lot of people who are really suffering in this world, like really, really poor, really in environments, neighborhoods. They don't know if they're going to live the next day. And you can kind of actually think of drug use as rational in, in some cases. Again, not advocating for it, but actually quite rational given the lack of alternatives to, to get through the day. Yeah, no, you, you hit it on the head. Um, this is just straight behaviorism. You know, it's a, I think it's still a powerful way to explain behavior. Um, uh, we think about the options that we have in our society. We as, a, as an individual, for example, um, and my kids, um, I, when I raised them, I raised them according to these principles. Um, they have, I mean, video games, they have their work at school, they have, uh, friends, significant others, all of these sort of things. And so, um, we present these options like, okay, if you do well at school, all right, then you might, then I'll buy you a video game or you have you you can play your video game. Oh, these are the kind of options that we present to them in order to shape their behavior. I mean, this is how the world works. Mm -hmm. And so that study that you talked about, um, we just wanted to do a simple study to see if people who smoke crack cocaine, um, their behavior conformed or comported with uh, just typical behavior. They, they're the, the same principles um, that were underlying my behavior. Do, do they underlie their behavior? So we presented them with an, an attractive alternative uh, money. In the case of the, the paper that you discussed, uh, we presented them with uh, an option, $5 or a hit of cocaine. They took drug and money on about the same of same number of occasion. In a follow up study, we took people and we said, "Okay, we're going to have five dollars be an option, 
as well as $20 be an option. Uh, when we increased the dose to $20, they took money on nearly every occasion, uh, indicating that their behavior in both of these studies uh, was as rational as most of our behavior. Um, and, and so people said, well, they'll take drug on every occasion, no matter what. No, their behavior comported with the regular principles of behavior. And so um, that was important to show, even though people had shown this repeatedly in laboratory animals, in rats, in non-human primates, and then subsequently people start to show this in humans. Wow. Wow. I, th I do think this is related to the, to the argument you've made that a lot of drugs are banned in America due to racism. And I, I, you know, I, I do think this is related, right? Like there are specific populations that are being targeted, it seems. You say that, yeah, you say there's a lot of money in misleading people about drugs. Can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So um, our first national drug laws that were, were enacted that, res that restrict drugs uh, were enacted in 1914 under the, this thing called the Harrison Act. Um, the Harrison Act was uh, at a time when the Congress believed, really strongly believed in states' rights. So they weren't trying to enact federal laws to restrict drugs. But what happened was that they, we had all of these reports, first Chinese people, uh, the Chinese people in the opium dens, they owned opium dens and they were doing well. Uh, but then we start having these reports about white women going into these opium dens being corrupted by the Chinese and also the Chinese businessmen were doing well, which made many of the white uh, businessmen in these cities, San Francisco and New York, uh, be jealous. And so they, they enacted local laws uh, to restrict uh, these dens and to prevent white people from going into the Chinese-owned den. Uh, and then about the same time, cocaine and black people, there were stories that were said that uh, black men were causing white, were seducing white women into prostitution with cocaine. And they were also saying that uh, black men were, beca they became impervious to 32 caliber weapons. And so you had to have a larger caliber bullet in order to kill uh, black men who were uh, crazed on cocaine. All of these things were exaggerations and untrue, but they led to the passage of that first drug law. And then subsequently with cannabis, uh, Mexican-Americans, Black Americans, they were saying misbehaved. They thought that they were as good as white people when they spoke cannabis. Uh, in 1937, they essentially banned cannabis for these reasons. And so when we say that our drug laws are they resulted from uh, racism more so than pharmacology. This is what we mean. But I want to be clear here mm. to say that those laws were not only supported by white people, they were also supported by the racial minority groups that were targeted. So you would have like black middle to upper class people in support of these laws. Uh, this, this thing we call politics of respectability, showing the white population that we're with you. We're well, we share your view. We're not like those Negroes. And mm -hmm. so that happened then. And that happens even today. So I mm -hmm. want people to understand that it's these laws are not only supported by the white majority, but it's also supported by the same racial groups that are being subjugated by these laws. It must not be easy collecting, being a scientist in such a political minefield of a topic. You know, it's a little bit different than like someone who's like, my life is to study the visual cortex of the 
you know, like no one cares about the BA forty seven or whatever. <laughs> but but I do. I mean, I think. I mean, I do. I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's fascinating what what you do, and you can do it. Um, mm. and and you learn all of these things. And I think a lot of people are interested in it, and and then you don't get called political. I, I think that's mm. that's cool. Mm. You know, what I do at some level, I have to think about like, uh, all right, my heroes. I think it, uh, we, we not, we're not long from April 4th. April 4th is the day that Martin Luther King was killed 54 years ago. And I think about like when he died, uh, his popularity was in the, in the garbage, in the tank. He was not a popular pe- a person. Mm. Most Americans hated Martin Luther King. I mean, now we have this revisionist sort of history. Mm. Now that he's gone and we can sanitize his sort of uh, history and, and and only focus on I have a dream and not the other things that uh, uh, that he really advocated for. So um, so I have to think about people like him, like uh, my heroes. When they were here, they they weren't uh, popular and uh, mm. people didn't really want to hear what they have to say. And then I have to constantly uh, check myself, check the data and, and make sure that I am on the right side of the data. And and so if I constantly do these kind of things, I'm OK. And then history will do what it will. Um, but I know I have to have some integrity and I know um, that if I am thinking about everybody else's humanity, like I think about my own, um, that's a good start. And that's where I try to say. I really respect that. I, like, I truly respect that integrity. You've argued that uh, we need more high profile, responsible, sensible adults who, does, who do drugs to, to, to come out of the closet. You know, like you're a fascinating combination of... <laughs> things you're you're the first tenured uh african-american columbia professor is that true but you you know there is a certainly on the main campus uh so we have the medical mm-hmm. campus and we have so on on the medical campus there there might have been somebody uh who was tenured uh, before me okay. but i don't know what psychology department uh it, it, i'm in psychology and yeah. psychiatry i'm in the medical mm-hmm. and, the, and 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 the arts and science campus and the arts and science campus, you know, tenure is uh, where you have your salary uh, paid and that sort of thing. On the medical campus, it, it has something to do with um, you get paid if you bring in grants. And and so it's um, I don't know exactly how that works on the medical campus, but certainly on the main campus. On the main first. campus. Yeah. And and I know you've said in a talk, you're like, well, don't congratulate me for that. That's that's a, actually a, a tragedy you know, that we haven't had more. And I really appreciated how you responded. I saw some talk where people started to pull, you know, yeah, <laughs> they yeah, to give yeah. you a standing ovation for it. You're like, wait, hold up. Like we need, thank we you need, for saying need. that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I see yeah, you brother. Yeah, I see yeah, you. Yeah, I see yeah. you. And so I've, I've, um, in my own way, um, done that. I've, I've come out as loving edibles. <laughs> I even tweet about it. Um, I actually accidentally did way too much the other day. I have a whole Twitter thread. I'll share it with you. I thought I was doing a five megagram uh, snickerdoodle and I accidentally did it. Did you see that? You didn't happen to see that thread, did you? No. <laughs> and I accidentally did a hundred milligrams and that was, oh. and I actually went to the ER uh, because I was having a panic attack over it and it, and the uh, doctors, everyone found it very funny. But that's an that's an important that's an important experience because this is the yes. thing that I tell kids that one you know yes. um, drugs interact with a receptor and they would eventually float away and you're gonna be cool 
It might take some time. It might take as much as 24 hours, but you're going to be chill. And if people just understand that, that it'll be okay. Absolutely. And and this is part of the story. And I will absolutely share this, this Twitter thread with, with you. There was a moment where I just surrendered to my reality. Like I was definitely hallucinating. Like there was the four was pulsating and everything. And I have never experienced that on, on marijuana before. I didn't even know that was possible. <laughs> on marijuana i didn't know that was possible but it is i found out it's possible but there was a moment where i just leaned into it i was like i'm gonna be curious about this and i'm gonna tweet about tomorrow so and i was fine i was absolutely fine it's interesting how much the mind can calm you down even in some of these kinds of extreme states of consciousness like self-talk is still valuable even in these states right absolutely you know that experience i hope you write about it more to explain mm-hmm. the health because I think so many people will benefit from that, right? I mean, but yeah. particularly as we get older, I know like now I'm 55. And so uh, one of my comprehensive questions for my PhD was um, this issue of drug absorption and distribution as you get older, because the liver function is not what it used to be at 20 years old. So that means that more drug will get into the bloodstream meaning that you need to take less of it than you previously had to. And so like something like oral THC for me, I, I would I would have to say what really low doses um, or else I might have those kind of experiences. Yeah. And so these are the kind of things that we want to teach people. As you get older, your dosing and drug use should also change just like other things are changing. And we don't do a good job of teaching people these things uh, in our society. And, and, and that's one of the things that um, perhaps that's the next book, teach people about uh, mm. these changes that occur and how to make sure you keep yourself safe. The thing is, we need better packaging. Uh, this was a complete accident. I'm used to usually buying my five milligram snickerdoodles with like 10 in, a, in, in one package. As I bit down into most of this thing, I then realized there's no other snickerdoodles in the bag. And I'm like, well, that's weird. Usually there's 10. And then I realize it's 100 milligrams per snickerdoodle, and there's only one. There was only one in the bag, yeah. so that was that wasn't clear. That wasn't clear. Yeah, yeah. that's a yeah. that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, that 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 one there. Maybe, I hope you shared it with the manufacturer with the store because I, did. Uh, I call point, I yeah. called uh, yeah. MedMen yeah. or Med with MedMen. I think they're called. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, that's that's an excellent point um, because, um, yeah, it, at some level, I think about, um, I mean, you might need that much for, I don't know, patients who have extensive experience, but for typical people, that's quite a bit. And so uh, maybe that should be labeled medical so people will know yes. that that's, that's not for you, uh, really? the typical person. Put like yeah. a red sign, on, like extremely yeah. high dose, just so you know, yeah. Yeah, differentiate yeah. it some way. And, exactly. and this does, cool. This does relate to a lot to uh, some points you make about the need to regulate these things better. Other countries do a better job than America. They have drug checking facilities that are much better, right? What can we do in America to regulate these things better? So the cannabis thing that we just talked about, that was in a legal state and you can go and and buy it. And now you can can talk to the man in in California. So you can also talk to the folks who regulate packaging um, and and then they can deal with that. But oftentimes with other drugs, there's none of that. I mean, with other drugs where you don't, where it's not legal like cannabis is in in California and some other places, you have none of that. And so people buy drugs from, I don't know, their dealer or the internet or wherever. 
and, and they uh, don't know exactly what they're getting uh, in a place like Spain, Austria, the Netherlands, even Colombia. Uh, they can submit small samples, 10 milligrams or so of their drug to these drug checking facilities. And they can do this anonymously and it's also free. And they get a printout of all the chemicals that are contained in their little sample. And it comes with the dose, the concentrations, the amount of those chemicals in this uh, in the, in their sample. And so they are informed about what is actually there. In the United States, we have that technology, but we just haven't made it available to the general public, in large part because we still operate under this uh, puritanical sort of view that if we do that, then we're condoning, encouraging drug use, which is the same silly argument we said about condoms. Mm. Uh, if we hand out condoms, then we're condoning uh, premarital sex. It's, a, it's the same argument. And so in the book, I describe um, talking with uh, this woman, Lena, Lena Wynn. She was the health commissioner of Baltimore at the time. Lena Wynn, had, she went on to become the head of Planned Parenthood, uh, they eventually, they got rid of her relatively quickly. And now she's like a public intellectual uh, as a, a physician. But I talked to her about uh, having drug checking facilities in Baltimore uh, at the time when Baltimore was experiencing what they thought were uh, uh, large rates of uh, drug overdoses. Mm. And so uh, as the health commissioner, I said, you know, this is one way to deal with this, have drug checking facility. And so people can know what's in their, in their substance. So if they get something like fentanyl or some other substance that's more potent than heroin that they're seeking, mm. they will at least know and not overdo it and take too much. She essentially ignored me. Um, and, and to this day, you know, we don't have drug checking, not officially anywhere in, in the United States. Meanwhile, we are lamenting the fact that we have drug overdoses. And mm. when this simple sort of uh, uh, procedure can take care of, will address a lot of those uh, drug overdoses. And so that's been uh, one of those, uh, another one of those discouraging, um, disheartening things that I, I, I certainly experience uh, as I try and get this simple message across to public health officials. This makes me mad. <laughs> you don't want to see me mad. No, that was a Hulk, Hulk reference. No, I feel <laughs> you, man. No, this this is making me really upset. You know, I, it feels like in our in American society, we either stigmatize drug users or we treat them like they're Snoop Dogg, like they're cool, but not smart, you know, That's no offense, it. no offense to Snoop Dogg. No offense. I, no, I think no, 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 I feel you. Me too. It yeah. seems like there's a bimodal distribution of how we treat drug users. Right. But there's a middle ground here. Like most people probably in, in America who are drug users are probably middle class, you know, like they don't brag about it. You know, they, they use it, uh, so, somewhat responsibly in their life to bring their life more joy and pleasure, right? You you just you just hit on so much in that little that statement. You I maybe mean, you hit it. 
like like you said, no disrespect to Snoop Dogg because you know I think I love Snoop Dogg. Yeah, I think he's brilliant. Actually, yeah. I think he's uh, it's it's amazing his story. But you hit on so much there because I mean we think about the illicit drug trade. It's a multi billion dollar industry. So when we say, well, who are the users? They can't be poor people if it's a multi billion dollar industry. The people who are buying these drugs are middle to upper class people. Mm. Uh, they're the only ones who could support such an industry. So we know that for a fact. That's one. Uh, and two, when we think about how we caricature drug users, uh, we typically caricature them as these poor, degenerate, lost souls that are in need of our help, or in some extreme cases, just these ultra cool people who are taking the sanctioned drugs, like cannabis is kind of sanctioned cool now. And um, some psychedelics now, like psilocybin, okay, that's sanctioned cool today. Uh, but like heroin, that's always in the degenerate sort of class. And so those tropes, the whole society is invested in those tropes. When we think about people who write movies, without those tropes, Many of the movies that uh, contain drugs or drug use in it, they would not work because oftentimes if you think about any movie you see related to drugs, uh, the drug related characters are never developed. All you say is that, oh, he's a drug dealer. Therefore, he's bad. And you're bringing all the cultural baggage with you to that character. So the writer does not have to develop that character. Um, and we are supposed to believe these incredible things about the drugs. And, and, and so the writers are invested in this trope. Of course, law enforcement is invested in this trope. When you think about all of the cop shows, they always show the drug sort of people as being the bad people. Of course, the cop yes. people are the good people. Yes. The whole entire society is invested in this trope. And this trope is getting people killed. And that's the thing that I've been trying to point out. Yeah, and not just. Oh, sorry. Go on. No, no, please, please. You got it. No, please. No, I definitely feel you, and I would even go a step further. It seems like the uh, the the drug users in these movies are usually always Hispanic or black. Like it, it just seems like so that like so many of these movies just fall into some sort of stereotype that like it's like it never dawned on a scriptwriter to like just break out of it. (laughs) Would it be that hard? Would it be that hard to rewrite the script? (laughs) Yeah, but you know, like now, of course, with the opioids, uh, they are. Uh, shifting to make sure that the drug users are white. Uh, when you think about, mm. uh, I just came from uh, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, one of my favorite places uh, at some level. Um, and, and and Oklahoma, of course, uh, has a large white population, even in their prison. They're like one of the, uh, they, they're like the top uh, prisoner, uh, uh, prison, they, they have more prisons per capita than any other place in the United States, I believe. And a place like Oklahoma, they like ran out of uh, minority like Native Americans and black people to arrest. So they were arresting white folks there at law in large numbers. And so there are a number of places like that, even in places like Michigan and a lot of these sort of rust belt places where jobs went away, the factories went away. And the only sort of jobs are in law enforcement. And then they run out of minority people to arrest. And so they're arresting Mm. Or white people. And so we're all in the same bag now as a result of this sort of out of control uh, machine. Um, in, in, in effect, 
the, the war on drugs has become a jobs program for many people that where those factories went away. And now um, uh, poor white people are paying the price, just like um, minorities have been paying for some period of time. And, um, and, and so you will see this if you go to places like the Rust Belt. Thank you for that clarification. That is so interesting. You know, we had talked a little about the effects of uh, of drugs on cognitive functioning, but I'm also interested in individual difference predictors that predict whether or not you use drugs in the first place. So kind of not post, but pre. I came across some data showing that IQ, higher IQ is correlated with greater alcohol consumption use, higher tobacco use, and among British children, more likely to consume illegal drugs. So there's that doesn't fit a narrative. That doesn't fit a narrative, does it? Well, it, it might depend on if if it's just the more likely to have tried a drug. So, like when mm. we think about tobacco, for example, uh, some of the most consistent data shows that the more education you have, the less likely that you are to be a smoker. Um, mm. and, and because, like, as we got better education about tobacco. People with more education just don't don't smoke on a regular basis. But if we're talking about simply trying a drug, people who are maybe have a higher IQ might be more likely to try it because they are might they may be more likely to be suspicious of the messages from government sources about drugs, and so they want to know for themselves. Somebody like me, I grew up as an athlete, and I was quite obedient. And which I've never took a drug. I was dumb and obedient, you know. Those, mm. the, uh, and so I was not one of those people who, who did uh, any drugs. But as I got more information, more education, and learned more about the, the our government misleading people in certain areas, I was then I was one of those candidates with more education who was more likely to try a drug. Yeah. Okay. Great distinction between just trying a drug and addiction. So let's let's double click on addiction for a second. You say people are not dying because of drugs per se, but because of ignorance. But this is solvable. You say this is solvable. You talk yes. about you say addiction isn't the norm, but is predictable. Yes. Uh, I really like that as well. So um, let's talk about some of these these things. Um, I guess there's two separate issues here. There's well, the, what are the predictable th- predictable factors topic, and then there's the topic of how is it solvable. So let's start with the predictable factors yeah. topic. One thing I think is replicable in the literature that I that I found is comorbidity of various psychiatric disorders does make it more luck- likely that you'll become addicted to drugs, yeah. uh, particularly opioids. Is that is that correct? Does that still hold you, up in the literature? You hit it on the head. Yeah. Um, that's it. People who are suffering from depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, you, you name it, they're far more likely to meet criteria for substance use disorder than people who are not. That's <laughs> one of the major predictable, uh, predicting, uh, predictable factors. Uh, another one is um, think about people who have uh, chronic unrealistic expectations heaped on them. I think about uh, celebrities, particularly childhood stars, as they uh, grow up throughout life. They have been taking care of their whole family, whole extended family. And if their career wanes or they might be having, I don't know, problem, financial problems such that they can no longer uh, maintain that sort of level of income. Imagine the stress that will be put on them because then people say, well, you know, uh, what about wealthy people who uh, have, uh, who meet criteria for addiction? 
yeah, we have to think about all of the unrealistic expectations heaped on some of these people. And they're more likely also to uh, hit, uh, be uh, to meet criteria for dependence. And I think about the Rust Belt in the United States, uh, where all those jobs went away. People were making six-figure incomes, and they were uh, respected members of their community. Those factories went away, and so too did their sort of positive regard or their positive standing in that community. All of those things make you more likely to meet criteria, not only for drug addiction, but other sort of problems that you might have in your life as a result. And so what it tells us is that we have to take care of the psychosocial environment if we're concerned about drug addiction, if we're concerned that people in our society are not doing well. We, will, we have to take care of the environment. And, and that's not as sexy as identifying a gene or a specific type of neuron. Um, that's not as sexy. Uh, it requires actual work. Um, and, and so that's why we haven't so much focused on that, uh, many of us who study drugs, because it's not as sexy. Yeah, a couple things uh, that you can that is fixable. Drug consumption rooms sounds like a very viable option, and drug purity testing services. Can you can you talk about some of those? Are we yeah. woefully uh, yeah. uh, lacking those in America? Yeah, let's think about drug overdoses, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, the things that we know about drug overdoses, which you never see in the headlines, um, but I point this out in the book is most of the people who die from a drug related overdose have multiple drugs in their system at the time mm-hmm. of their death. And so what it tells you is that uh, it's rare or is a lot uh, more or less like it's a lot less likely that people will die with only one drug in their system. So what it tells you is that you want to figure out the drug combinations that become toxic. So if you take something like an opioid, uh, heroin or some other opioid, fentanyl, and you mix it with another sedative, alcohol, a benzodiazepine like Xanax, or um, uh, even with a pain, uh, neuro, nerve pain medications like gabapentin or Neurontin, uh, or even older antihistamines, they, they, they also induce sleep. Um, so you mix these kind of medications, these drugs together, it increases the likelihood that you might have respiratory depression. So you try and that you're ed- part of your education, you tell people don't mix certain sedatives, but you don't have don't have the messaging, don't mix drugs, because people who use drugs will automatically ignore that messaging because we know that some drug combinations, like for example, oh, cocaine and heroin together, um, that's a nice speedball. And people um, like that effect. And that effect certainly is not as deadly, or that combination is certainly not as deadly as, say, heroin and promethazine, which is an older antihistamine that induces quite a bit of sleep. So you have to be specific in your messaging about these drug combinations. That's one. Another one is just simply... um, those drug checking facilities, they that will go a long way if people actually knew what they were getting. Now, when we think about the safe or the supervised consumption rooms, the thing that I worry about there is um, obviously it's it's a good thing to have if you have nothing else. Mm-hmm. My concern there is that when people have those or they fight for those things, they think that they have done uh, all of the work. Um, uh, First of all, the only people who will go to a supervised consumption facility are people who have no homes. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And like me, I would never go to and, and use drugs in a public setting uh, like that. I, I would like to have it in my the privacy of my own home in a setting which I'm comfortable. But if I had no home, I would have to go there. So what it tells us that we really should be working on housing. And that's what we that's where the real problem is. My concern is that people are treating these supervised consumption facilities as if they are they are sol- uh, solutions to unhoused people. We really need to make sure they have housing. Well, you're raising a lot of really good points. I really want to think this through through with you for a second because you know, you can have people start to uh, make the argument, well, like Carl, are you ignoring personal responsibility? Are you ignoring the the role that personal responsibility takes in drug overdoses and addiction? And what is interesting about that argument, because it, it's like on the one hand, your whole book is is speaking to the individual. <laughs> on the one hand, your whole book is saying you can take personal responsibility to a degree and have a responsible drug use. But then on the other hand, you're talking about all these environmental things we can change that can really help a person. The problem is when people have either or thinking, right? When they're like, you know, you have to pick one or the other. Mm-hmm. And also, I just want to put a, a wrench in this and say, well, if comorbidity of mental illness is do, uh, do play a role um, that is an internal factor uh, that does have a pretty substantial heritability. And even if, so that suggests that like it's still beyond the person's control to a, to a certain degree, whether or not they're going to have and develop mental illnesses. And then you, you throw in the mix mental illness in, and poverty, you throw mm-hmm. these things into a system. I love systems mm-hmm. thinking. That's why I like mm-hmm. thinking about it. And you have, you have almost like no free will of this individual to, if drug is the only option in their life. To a certain yeah. degree, so I just wanted to riff with you about all this. Yeah, no, yeah, you, you, when you um, so one of the reasons that we have this sort of uh, brain disease model of addiction is because there's a there is a concern that people have in that if we if it's not a brain disease, then that that means you're blaming the victim. You know, and so what you're pointing out is that no, uh, you can still look at these other sort of factors. And you can see that it's not blaming the victim. There are all kinds of other ways that we can intervene and we're not blaming the victim. But ultimately, we uh, as individuals, we ultimately we we have some uh, responsibility for our life. I mean, that we can never get away from that because we're going to feel the consequences uh, more than the other folks, because these are the consequences to us. And so. There's an interplay with all of these things, and um, uh, you, I think you you summarized it better than me when you pointed out all of these things. But I absolutely agree. Yeah, I just see a lot of parallels between the same arguments being made about IQ as and stratification of society and how personal responsibility. All the same arguments keep you can just generalize them to every specific field. You see the same fights being had. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You say our moralism is killing us. That's that's something you said. Yeah. Um, I love that. And that suggests maybe we need to tone down the uh, moral superiority of non-drug users, right? Like the like you know the stigmatization of drug users who who are using it responsibly, even irresponsibly, stigmatizing them and yeah. and having more compassion for yeah. the factors that that led to that decision. Yeah, Yeah, you you think about it, you know, uh, we have done such a good job of manipulating the public thinking around drugs that we don't even think about the main reason that people use drugs. Most people use drugs 
in order to alter their consciousness and in order to feel better, in order to feel better about other people. Um, I think about like in the book, I just described the, the, my use of many of these drugs and feeling uh, more magnanimous, more forgiving, more hopeful. All of these things are pro-social things that we want to encourage. And when we think of that, it's like, why would you not want people to experience these things? We have been we've been so good at manipulating people to move away from those main sort of reasons that people take drugs into uh, automatically going to this frame that the drugs are going to imprison them. And that rarely is a thing that happens, uh, whereas these other pro-social things are far more likely. Um, I know I feel much more hopeful about our society, about the people in our society at the having take something like MDMA or even heroin than I am um, uh, most times. And then I can think about things differently. I think about how my behavior might have negatively impacted someone else and make sure that I apologize, atone for that, make sure I don't do that sort of thing anymore. All of these things um, are what I do when I am um, maybe psychoactively altered. I want to make sure that I'm taking care of our environment, uh, yes. our people, all of these things. Yes, yes. I love that. Well, so what drugs do you use? In the book, I describe the stimulants from cocaine to uh, the amphetamines, um, um, also the opioids from heroin to some like oxycontin or oxycodone, um, uh, cannabis, of course. Um, so I describe all of these drugs, some of the uh, psychedelics um, uh, I've done things like 2CB. Um, uh, yeah, so I- Heroin? Have you done heroin? Oh yeah, that's yeah, an opioid, yeah, absolutely. That's not good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so the, the heroin thing, you know, I, I put that in the prologue up front. So mm. uh, I knew it would be an attention grabber. Uh, and mm. I said that, um, you know, I'm a regular heroin user, not defining regular. And yeah. regular just meant at regular intervals. So it could be yeah. once a week, once a month, once every six months, once, once a year, yeah. depending on the, you know, whether I can get it, which, uh, in the United, I mean, get good, pure heroin. But what that turned into in the press was I shoot heroin every day. Um, oh. and, and of course, uh, you know, I no one, I can't do that and, and, and then accomplish all the things that I, I do. And so my the reason why I pointed out that I used all these drugs, because I wanted to be an example. One, I wanted to be an example of getting out of the closet so we can change this awful narrative about what a drug user look like. I figured with someone with my accomplishments, uh, it would be hard for the press or people to uh, disparage me or to besmirch my reputation. But sure enough, they tried. Another reason I stayed at my drug use up front is because I wanted to uh, align myself with the people who were being denigrated in our society. I wanted to be with them. I wanted people to know that you're not alone. Um, and I wanted people to get out of the closet so they also could align themselves with those people who were being denigrated in our society. I love it. I love it. I, I'll, I'll, I'll join you. I'll join you on that on that cause. I've been, Thank I've you, just started, started to, uh, to experiment with some high end, uh, ma the macro dosing of psilocybin, 
microdosing, macrodosing, you know, like four, 500 milligrams. And I'm, I'm just work, working my way up. But to me, it's just all about exploration. And, you know, I am, I have very high openness to experience personality scores. I imagine you do as well. You know, you could be a highly intelligent person, high openness to experience, try lots of things responsibly. It doesn't make you a horrible human being. <laughs> Absolutely. Know? Yeah. So who are some of your greatest influences outside of psychology? Because I see Bob Marley behind you. Is that right? Yeah, Bob Marley. Not, not is actually a, Bob Marley, I should say, but I see a. <laughs> yeah, one of his albums. I'm not covers. hallucinating. I'm making a, a drug joke. <laughs> you see, yeah, Bob is always over my shoulder. By the way, you know. <laughs> I see. Um, I see Bob Marley right now. I'm seeing Bob. No, uh, so what, what is that? Is that a disc? Is that like a record? A record? Yeah, that's a record. You know, that's wow. the old vinyl. Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah, no. Uh, so Bob is one of my biggest influences because, uh, you know, I did four years in the Air Force, 84 to 88. And uh, during that time, you know, I, I grew up in Miami. And so uh, and my grandmother uh, it's from the Caribbean. Uh, her father's Jamaican. Her mother's Bahamian. She's Bahamian. And so uh, we had a lot of Caribbean influence. But when I went to the Air Force, I really got into like more of my Caribbean sort of um, uh, upbringing. And, and Bob, uh, his music and lyrics uh, helped me to start questioning our society. Um, and that's where I really began to start thinking. And then, you know, other people, um, Gil Scott Heron, another artist, musician, um, even, I mean, like writers, people like Upton Sinclair, the Jungle, that book uh, was really important. James Baldwin, one of my uh, favorite oh, writers. Yeah. writers. Uh, yeah, you know, many people, James Baldwin has uh, seen a resurgence in popularity here recently. Mm. Um, but one of the things that current or contemporary, contemporary writers don't write about Baldwin is that Baldwin was arguing for drug legalization um, as early as 1986, and nobody really uh, mentions that. I, I pointed it out in, in, in the new book, and, um, mm. and but I hope people understand, like Baldwin predicted this sort of awful uh, war on drugs and the imprisonment of all of these poor people. He predicted this before it mm. happened, and he was saying that the only thing that you're going to get is poor people behind bars because wealthy mm. people are going to continue to use drugs and be fine. But our poor people will be behind bars and a lot of people, law enforcement and others will make a lot of money on this war on drugs. And that's exactly what happened. He was so prescient in so many ways. Such a genius. So we have now two Columbia professors who've come out of the closet. Carl Hart and Scott Barry Kaufman. So we we need to rally the troops in the psychology department. There, we know we we see you, Mary Sue. No, I'm joking. I, there's no one called Mary Sue in our department, but <laughs> I did, I'm not mentioning anyone in particular. But no, we see you. You know. But anyway, um, I love it. Look, I thank you so much for your time today, and um, let's 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 grab a coffee on campus sometime. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Would you please hit me up and let's do it? Yeah. Uh, I would yeah. love to. I really yeah. appreciate it, and thank you, man, for uh, even taking the time to check out the work. I really appreciate it likewise keep it up keep it up <laughs> all right take care bro thanks for listening to this episode of the psychology podcast if you'd like to react in some way to something you heard i encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our youtube page the psychology podcast we also put up some videos of some episodes on our youtube page as well so you'll want to check that out 
Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at at First first listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball. From Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.